Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is New Books Network. Uh, welcome, and my name is Natalia, and my guest today is Stephen Brockman. Uh, today we will be discussing his recent publication, The Writer's State, Constructing East German Literature, 1945-1959. Uh, good morning, Dr. Brockman. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure. So before we discuss your publication, uh, do you mind if you tell us just a little bit about yourself, about your teaching interests, research interests? All right, I'm happy to do that. I teach uh, German at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Um, and I've been here for about 24 years now. And um, I'm uh, a Germanist, so uh, what I do is what I work on is 20th century German uh, literature, culture, film and that sort of thing. And um, one of the things that makes me a little bit unusual among American-born Germanists is that I actually spent a year in the mid-1980s living and studying in the German Democratic Republic that was the former East Germany, the socialist Germany. Um, And that was an experience that not a whole lot of American Germanists actually had. So... um, that's one of the things that um, that happened to me that has did not happen to a lot of other American Germanists. Um, I noticed that you have a number of works uh, that discuss uh, German culture, German li- literature, and uh, would you tell us a little bit about those research interests and, in particular, about uh, your interest in German identity? Um, before we discuss your recent publication, The Writer's State, Constructing Ger- uh, East German Literature. Um, Well, one of the reasons why I got interested in Germany in the first place um, is that it was a divided state at the time that I was going through college and then graduate school in the uh, 1970s and the 1980s. Um, And I think divided states are kind of interesting. There Mm -hmm. aren't all that many divided states um, in 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 the world. And it was also a nation that obviously had to deal with some of the most difficult historical problems of the 20th century, so World War One, World War Two, the Holocaust, um, and then the division of Germany. And um, all of that got me kind of interested in the question of German identity and how do uh, contemporary Germans view their identity. Uh, and so, yeah, the question of German identity and the way that culture has an impact on questions of German identity has been at the center of everything that I've written, basically, from my very first book up to the most recent one. So what do you find um, particularly specific about divided states? Since you mentioned that uh, um, you visited Germany when it was a divided state, what was uh, your impression of that divided state back then? Well, um, at the time, when I first went over to um, East Germany for the very first time, I was an undergraduate still. I was living in West Germany, Mm -hmm. down in the southwest of Germany, in a little town called Freiburg, uh, which is kind of the capital of the Black Forest. Uh, and we did a um, trip uh, in the winter uh, to uh, to Berlin, 
uh, mostly West Berlin, which at that time was an island, kind of. West Berlin was an island in the middle of um, of, of East Germany. Um, but then we also uh, made a little trip uh, into uh, East Berlin, and, and that was my very first experience, actually, with East Germany. Um, and I became fascinated by it. I became fascinated by the fact of this country. On the one hand, you had the West, uh, which was um, one of the most important countries in the European Union um, and a quite a well-to-do country, um, quite a proud country uh, in the late 1970s and the uh, early 1980s. Um, and then in the East, it seemed like a completely different world. And yet, um, in some ways, the people were the same. <laughs> so I found that quite interesting, you know, that you had these two, um, you know, completely different social and economic systems on the one hand, but um, you have kind of similar cultural approaches, similar attitudes, and actually kind of similar people um, on both sides. And I think it's, it was kind of, you could almost think of it as a kind of experiment uh, in, you know, what... Um, you know, what changes and what doesn't change uh, in a culture um, based on the political and the economic system. So what didn't change? Well, I think there, you know, some things remained uh, pretty much the same. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the things, for instance, I think is um, this kind of veneration for the German traditional culture. So you think of the German classicism, you think of um, people like Goethe and Schiller, um, and this uh, veneration, or, you know, you can think of, of music too, right? You can think of, Be of Beethoven and Bach and all that sort of thing. Um, and the veneration for that was very strong in the West. I mean, the most important West German cultural institute was the uh, was and is uh, the Goethe Institute. Um, but it was also very, very strong in the East. In fact, in the East, it was almost stronger even than it was in the West, partly because Weimar was in the East, which was the city where Goethe and Schiller lived, um, and um, and for, for a couple of other reasons, which we can get into later, maybe. Um, so, you know, I would say that the veneration of, of um, German culture, of traditional German culture, was one of the, um, the top things, but also a kind of, you know, kind of just, just basic cultural attitudes and approaches um, remain the same. The other thing that that um, that fascinated me when I then went to East Germany to spend a year there uh, in 1985 and 1986 um, is that when I decided to do that and I was sort of visiting some friends in West Germany just before I did that, I remember one of my West German friends urging me to go visit her when I got back to Germany. Um, and I said, well, I'm actually not going to be leaving Germany. I'm going to be in Germany the whole, the whole time. Uh, but, um, but I'll just be in East Germany. Mm -hmm. I won't be in West Germany. I'm going to be in East Germany. And, and that kind of was, a, was an interesting concept for her because she was kind of thinking of East Germany as not German. But, of mm -hmm. course, I was thinking of it as, as German. Um, and I, I think for her generation, she was about the same age as me. Um, for her generation of West Germans, it was a little bit difficult to think of East Germany as actually part of Germany, too. I think that's changed a little bit since then. But, uh, so what, and for older people, that wasn't the case. You know, so, I think they always saw it as part of Germany. 
So what was their impression about that country? So if it wasn't a part of Germany, then a part of what? Or it just uh, stood by itself? I think it kind of stood by itself. They mm. would have seen it as part of the East Bloc, mm-hmm. as, as part of you know the Russian or the, or the Soviet sphere of influence. Um, but but and they would have. I think they would have at some level intellectually recognized that it was that it was German. But they they were so used to thinking of West Germany as Germany, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> that um, that that East Germany actually kind of you know almost kind of got written off of the of the map. I think um, the same wasn't true on the other side. I mean, in, in, in the East, everybody was very much aware of, of of the West, and they would never have thought of, of of speaking of East Germany as as the only Germany. So, yeah. Well, I would assume that you visited Germany after the unification, so to speak. Yes. And yeah. did things change? Uh, in the East, you mean? Uh, both, East and West. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, things certainly things in the East have changed mm-hmm. radically, right? I mean, um, I mean, like I say, I lived in the East. I lived in Leipzig, which was the biggest, most important city in the East, aside from East Berlin. Um, and it's the most important city in Saxony, mm-hmm. uh, um, together with Dresden. Um, so I, I lived there uh, in... 1985 and 1986, and the city was completely run down. Um, it was, I mean, you can say a lot of things about the socialist system, um, but one thing that that happened in the cities, and in particular in Leipzig, was that there was no investment in the infrastructure of the buildings, and so it had all these beautiful old buildings that were simply kind of falling down and collapsing um, and going to rot and ruin. Um, there was soot everywhere. There was smoke everywhere. It was actually in the winter difficult to breathe sometimes mm. because, you know, because they heated with very dirty brown coal. Um, and, um, so, you know, there was, you know, just really, really a lot of pollution. Um, and that's, that's completely changed. So when you go back to Leipzig now, I was there. A couple of years ago, on a Fulbright in the um, autumn of of twenty fourteen, and it, you know the city is is new and it's clean. Everything looks you know spick and span. All the all these old buildings that were falling down, you know, in the nineteen eighties, they've been renovated. It's actually kind of shishi. It's been gentrified, mm-hmm. you know? mm-hmm. and that brings its own problems. But in terms, I mean, if you have enough money, you know, to live there. It's actually very pleasant and it's nice. Uh, and, um, so, I mean, just the, the sort of the way of living there has, has completely changed. You know, it's a, it's a, the city looks completely different. And I have to say it looks a lot better now than it did back then. What's the sense of division still there? The sense of division between the East and the West? Right. Um, I mean, yes and no, I would say. I mean, there it's it's over two decades now mm-hmm. since education, and I think my sense is that for young people, so that is right. people who are, you know, um, teenagers or in their 20s uh, or maybe even into their 30s, there's not as much of a distinction mm-hmm. right now between 
East Germans and West Germans. I, it is, I, I think my sense is that for young people, everybody sees themselves primarily as a German and then only secondarily. There, there may then be some identity of, yes, I'm an East German or, yes, I'm a West German. Um, for older people, I think there still is very much this sense of, I'm an Aussie, I'm an East German, uh, you know. So I think, you know, for people my age and even some people who are a little bit old, uh, younger than me or older than me, um, there is still this, this sense of kind of division. And I think mm-hmm. that's probably going to be there, you know, as long as they're alive, probably, yeah. So it, it, this is a fascinating insight. Um, and talking about your publication, uh, The Writer's State, um, would you tell us a little, a, a little bit about this project? You somewhere um, state, in East Germany, literature was never just literature. It was always also about collective identity and the path toward a better future, however imaginary or elusive that future may have been. So I think even the title of uh, your um, publication uh, gives some idea of the intersection of the political and the aesthetic. So would you tell us a little bit about this approach to discuss literature in these complicated terms? and in these complicated uh, contexts, I would say. Yeah. Well, um, my impetus for writing this book kind of goes back to um, to the time that I spent as mm-hmm. a graduate student in East Germany back in the 1980s. So it goes back to the period that we were really just discussing. Um, and um, when I was living there, I got to know a number of uh, German scholars and um, East German writers. Um, And I became kind of fascinated by the literary scene and by the significance of literature for politics in East Germany. And I, you know, when, when somebody like Christa Wolf, who was an important writer uh, in the 1970s and the 1980s, when she published a new book, Everybody talked about it. Everybody wanted to get it at the bookstores. And this was true for a lot of uh, writers. And then they were discussed uh, at um, big public events where you'd have a, a large audience. And so that really struck me. Um, and after uh, Unification, my first book was called um, Literature and German Reunification. And so it was about what was going on between West and East Germany and how that, what kind of an impact that had on writers in, um, in the two states. Um, and then I decided um, from this most recent project, The Writer's State, to go back a little bit in time because I had looked, in my first book, I had looked in particular at the period of the 1980s, um, so the decade before reunification and then the period immediately after reunification. But um, what I wanted to do with the writer's state was really go back to the foundation of East Germany uh, in 1949, so four years after the end of the Second World War, um, and look at what was going on at that time culturally um, among writers and other literary intellectuals and how they perceived this sort of nascent East German state and how the state perceived them. So what I'm trying to do in the book is is look at both both the writers and their attempt to 
uh, shape the state for their own purposes. And then also the primary party, the Socialist Party um, of East Germany and its politicians and how they're trying to shape writers Mm -hmm. to their own uh, ends. So it's kind of like a tug of war in a sense. Uh, And um, what I'm trying to do in the book is uh, cover the first 15 years after the end of, of the Second World War, so the period from 1945 to 1959. Um, and, I'm, and I'm going against a kind of general prejudice that exists in scholarship that the 1950s were kind of this boring, uninteresting period when everything was just this kind of top-down um, Stalinist system um, and there were no interesting cultural debates going on. I mean, and I, and I, and I, the more I began looking at this period, the more I saw that actually there were tons and tons of interesting debates. Um, and there was lots and lots of stuff going on. And kind of the general prejudice has been, and I'd say that's really been for, for 30 or 40 years, the general prejudice has been that an interesting kind of and lively literary scene only began developing in East Germany in the course of the 1960s and the 1970s with the um, arrival of a new generation of East German writers on the literary scene, people like Christoph Wolf or Fulker Braun or whatever. Uh, and um, that's been kind of the standard line on the history of East German literature um, for a number of decades now, actually. So, um, And the more I looked at the 1940s and the 1950s, the more I saw that that was just wrong. Uh, and there actually were a lot of interesting uh, things going on and some very interesting writers and some very good books being created um, in the 1940s and the 1950s. Um, and so I wanted to go back and I wanted to look at that um, and and give credit where credit is due. So um, and in a sense, it's, you know, I'm owning up to my own mistakes because this is a way that I myself used to view the 1940s and the 1950s. And I think it's an easy thing to do to kind of just write off that entire era if you don't know too much about it. But once you begin looking at it, um, it actually becomes, I think, much more interesting. But as your work demonstrates, there were changes within these 15 years as well. And yes. those cha- it looks like those changes were drastic. They were drastic. They were very drastic. And, there, you know, I, I, don't, I certainly don't want to paint it as a utopia. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't. It was a very, very difficult, problematic situation. And in many ways, it got worse mm-hmm. uh, over over the the 15 years that I'm talking about. Part of what I'm trying to say is actually that I think, I think we have, you know, a too rosy view of, of the 1970s and the 1980s actually. So we look at the political situation of the 1970s and the 1980s. um, And this is a period that I don't talk about as much in the book. Um, But that's the period where writers are seen as, you know, having been contesting the state and um, challenging the state. Um, and, you know, I think actually in some ways the 1970s and the 1980s um, are culturally 
in my opinion, less interesting than the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, because I think um, less was actually going on culturally uh, in those years. Um, and, I mean, I think, you know, it, it remains to be done. I mean, maybe somebody now is going to go back and look at the 1970s and the 1980s uh, from a new perspective. Um, I don't, I don't, that's not something that I do in my book. But I think, but it's something that I hint at at the very end of the book that maybe the seventies and the eighties aren't all that they're cracked up to be in East German literature. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I remember that you mentioned that we're talking about the state that doesn't exist anymore, but it doesn't mean that the influences of that literature that existed a couple of decades ago um, doesn't exert any kind of influence uh, anymore. So the repercussions probably of that period are still uh, quite tangible in the contemporary um, uh, situation. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's been a whole um, flowering of, mm-hmm. of post East German literature. So there's actually a, a new generation of writers who um, are in their 20s, 30s, 40s, who are writing books about East Germany, um, both East Germany historically and East Germany um, now. And some of those books are really interesting. So, I mean, you could, you know, you could even argue that in some ways East German literature continues to exist mm-hmm. um, and that it's actually one of the most interesting aspects of contemporary German literature right now. And so, how do they usually portray that past? <laughs> um, I, I think the best books portray mm-hmm. that past um, in, a, in a fairly honest mm-hmm. um, and, and um, historically accurate way. Um, you know, I mean, I think some of, some of these works are actually doing a pretty good job of getting at, at historical truths that couldn't be addressed as accurately or as, um, as unproblematically prior to the end of East Germany. I mean, until the end of East Germany, there was actually censorship. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a, a, a book that tried to look at the past in a in an accurate and um, and and truthful way, might have had trouble getting published. Mm-hmm. So Whereas the, after nineteen eighty nine, obviously, that's no longer a problem. So, since the writers are writing about that period right now, it's a kind of a a signal or a kind of a um, evidence that they do recognize that kind of literature and that kind of history as part of their contemporary identity. Yes. Yeah, I think for for a lot of them that's true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So talking about that period when you um, um, that you discuss in your uh, publication. Um, you mentioned um, in our conversation, and also you mentioned that in your uh, book, that there was some collaboration between writers and uh, officials and fun- yes. functionaries. So, uh, who, uh, what, what writers were collaborating with the officials? And uh, I'm sure that there were ri- writers that were not collaborating with the officials. How did this collaboration work? What, uh, what were um, the expectations for the writers to create new nation or to contribute to the cre- to the creation of the new nation? Yeah. Um, well, I would make a distinction between writers who were members of the party mm-hmm. and writers who were not members of the party. So, um, 
to take an example of the very first, so writers who were not members of the party, um, Bertolt Brecht would be the primary example and the most important writer that I talk about in the book. Um, so Bertolt Brecht was always sympathetic to socialism. Mm-hmm. Um, he was called by one of his friends a Bolshevik without a party uh, identification. Okay, so he didn't have a party book, but he was he was kind of intellectually and in his emotional sympathies, he was a Bolshevik. Uh, and why did he not want to be, become a member of the party? He didn't want to become a member of the party because he always wanted to preserve his independence as a writer and as a playwright. Um, and so Bertolt Brecht came to East Germany in 1949, actually before the foundation of the state. Um, and one of my early chapters deals with the performance of his play, uh, Mother Courage and Her Children, um, which premiered in January of 1949 uh, in Berlin. And, um, and the debates surrounding Bertolt Brecht. And so Bertolt Brecht is, is, is the best example of a writer who, who always sought ferociously to maintain his independence artistically while still supporting the state as a socialist project. So he believed in the socialist project for a number of reasons, but he wanted to maintain his independence as an artist. And there was always this tug of war uh, between Brecht on the one hand and party officials on the other. And that went on really until until Brecht's death in 1956. And I kind of follow the strands of Brecht and his situation in the GDR uh, from 1949 to 1956. So that's kind of one class of writers. Um, and, and, and Brecht was the most important, but he was by no means the only uh, writer who was not uh, a member of the party. There were there were others as well, um, and then I think the most important prose writer living in East Germany um, was a woman named Anna Zegers, who's not as well known in the United States, um, but she's arguably one of the great German novelists of the twentieth century, um, and she was a committed communist. Uh, she was a member of the party and. Very importantly, she was also Jewish. Uh, And so um, her Jewish identity, even though she was an atheist, she was Jewish, um, her Jewish identity always played an important role for her, both in her life and in her writing. And while she was in exile from the Nazis, she had spent some time in Mexico. um, uh, And while she was in Mexico, she learned that her mother, um, had been murdered by the Nazis as a Jew in a, um, in a concentration camp. Uh, she'd been deported uh, from Germany to uh, Poland, and then she was murdered in a concentration camp. And so she learned this um, while she was in, in Mexico. Um, and what happened, what the Nazis did to the Jews, not only to the Jews, but also to, to many of her communist uh, comrades, um, had a major impact on her. And so when she came back to the eastern part of Germany, that was in 1947, a couple years before Brecht, um, she was determined to use literature as a means of coming to terms with the Nazi past. 
And that was one of her primary goals. And so she wrote a number of novels and, and stories dealing with that. Um, and she was a member of the party and she was trying to do in some ways what the party wanted. But um, she also was trying to pursue her own course and to have a picture of contemporary Germany that, that was actually realistic. One of her critiques of her fellow communists was that they tended to look at the present with two rosy eyes uh, and see the socialist transformation as something that would happen immediately without any problems. And she was much more interested in looking at fascist mentalities, um, at, at, at ways that people had been raised in a Nazi way, um, and at, she was more interested in looking realistically at how difficult it is to go from being a, a, a Nazi, you know, in, in one year to being a socialist in another year. And she, she writes fairly honestly and openly uh, about some of those problems. And so her literature, the kinds of things that she wrote, often got criticized by some of the more party line writers as, you know, too negative or too pessimistic. Mm-hmm and too dark. Um, so she's a good example of somebody who's a party member um, and is not as independent as, say, Bertolt Brecht was, but is still trying to push for a certain amount of um, of, uh, of literary autonomy. Um, yeah. So um, you include Brecht's um, quote, I can't put myself in one part, part of Germany and thereby be dead for the other part. Yeah. And I believe Zegers didn't follow that kind of a uh, idea. Well, both Brecht and, I mean, it's important to realize that both Brecht and Zegers actually originally came from the West. Mm-hmm. So they weren't actually at home mm-hmm. in Berlin. Uh, Zegers was from Mainz, uh, which is this beautiful West German town on the, on the um, Rhine River. She writes about it a lot in her stories. And, and Brecht, of course, was from Augsburg uh, in the south, uh, in the southern part of West Germany, not far from Munich. Um, and so he was a South German. Uh, and um, um, Brecht, in particular, wanted to, he, I mean, Brecht never really um, completely settled in, in East Germany. He retained an Austrian passport. <laughs> so he kept his options open. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Zegers uh, threw her her lot in more firmly with the East German state. And of course, she was subject to party discipline in a way that Brecht wasn't. Because Brecht wasn't a member of the party, he was not subject to party discipline. Uh, and that's another reason why he didn't want to become mm-hmm. a member, so that he wouldn't be subject to party discipline. Whereas Zegers was subject to party mm-hmm. discipline. So um, it's different approaches, um, but they were friends. And, um, you know, and it, certainly through, for the, for the uh, seven years that they were both living in East Germany together, um, they were also allies. So things are getting more and more complicated, although we're talking about uh, uh, East, uh, East German writers. Um, we're also talking about these writers who have uh, Western mentality as well, and it's quite difficult to differentiate between those two. But um, um, is there a, was there any vision for this new East German literature? Because at some point it uh, looks like... Um, 
German approach to literature or to future lives, to, to, so to speak, was very similar to what the Soviets had. Well, everybody was moving towards some future, but that future was very bright and very, um, it looked very, um, wonderful. However, uh, the, the specifics, the details were quite, uh, elusive. So what yeah. kind of uh, vision for that literature did the writers and the officials have, if it makes any sense? Yeah, no, it does. Um, so um, I, at the very beginning, I think the vision was a broadly anti-fascist and fairly inclusive one. So um, we're talking about 19, you know, 1945, mm -hmm. and I talk a little bit about the development of the most important East German cultural institution, which was called the Cultural Federation um, for, uh, for the Democratic Renewal of Germany, Kulturbund zur Demokratischen Erneuerung Deutschlands. Uh, and the idea behind the Kulturbund uh, was that it was supposed to include people who were anti-fascists, anti-Nazis, from all of the political spectrum, from the right to the to the left, as long as they were not actually Nazis. Um, so, and the idea was to create this broad anti-fascist cultural coalition. And the, the cultural vision of the Kulturbund, I would say, was actually pretty conservative. Mm -hmm. um, so they venerated traditional German culture, they venerated Goethe, they venerated Schiller, um, and they viewed culture as a way of improving the German people and they saw Nazism as a um, as as a as an as an intentional attempt to leave the tradition of German culture behind. Mm -hmm. So they saw it as a violation of the traditions of German culture. Um, so that's kind of one group. Uh, and, and and I'd say both some of the communists and some of the more bourgeois elements in um, German culture kind of agreed with that um, approach. By the way, I think um, the 1930s and 1940s and 1950s in the Soviet Union also witnessed a fair amount of kind of veneration of classicism. Mm -hmm. So this was something that, that actually kind of more conservative Germans and the Soviet occupiers could agree on. Everybody loved Goethe, right? <laughs> uh, and so, so that's kind of one thing that everybody could agree on. Um, but then you have people like um, Bertolt Brecht, uh, who who are who are kind of critical of this veneration of German classicism, and who are much more modernist and avant-garde in their approach, and who are trying to create a completely new kind of culture. Uh, and so. Um, um, yeah. That's why one of the first debates that happens in East German culture is about Brecht and his plays. Um, and, and then the third group, I think, is this, if you go back to the 1920s, um, and when you have the, the attempt to create a proletarian kind of socialist culture, um, both in Germany and in the Soviet Union, um, you have people who are writing specifically about the lives of workers. Uh, so workers in factories, 
um, workers on collective farms and all that sort of thing. Um, and so it's kind of, um, it's, it's kind of a, a three-way group, I would say. On the one hand, you've got the def- defenders of traditional culture. On the other hand, you've got um, the people like Dresht who are arguing for a completely new and radical avant-garde culture. And then you've got this third group um, that kind of doesn't sit very easily with either one, which is kind of proletarian culture. Uh, and um, I would say that proletarian culture, which had been... Um, which Stalin himself and some of Stalin's uh, henchmen had actually kind of crushed mm-hmm. uh, in favor of, of, of a more um, classist, classicist approach in the 1930s, that the kind of proletarian culture approach remained strangely alive uh, in East Germany because some of the most important East German writers um, – uh, the ones with the most power actually supported it, and their approach to proletarian culture went all the way back to uh, the 1920s. I'm thinking of somebody like Willy Bredel, who is a writer who's completely forgotten now, but he was already writing these proletarian novels and uh, reports in the 1920s and the early 1930s, and then he became one of the most important East German writers in the, um, uh, in the 1950s. So, um, so it's a kind of an uneasy coalition of different people who are trying to create um, uh, East German culture, and there are kind of struggles among all of these groups throughout the period that I'm talking about. Yeah, you extensively discussed the um, Soviet's presence in Germany, and I'm wondering how strong was the interference with the German cultural affairs? Because it sounds like, well, it was quite um, tangible and quite visible. Um, Yes, it was quite tangible and quite visible. Um, I would say that the Soviet interference in cultural affairs was particularly strong in the first four or five years Mm. of after the end of the war. So, of course, in 1945, East Germany is basically simply the Soviet-occupied territory of Germany. That's all it is. There is no East German state. It's simply the, the um, Soviet occupation. Um, and, um, and that occupation basically continues. The Soviet occupation continues until the creation of the state, and even long after the creation of the state, essentially it continues until the end of the state in 1989 and 1990. Um, after the state itself is formed, um, so... We're talking 1949, 1950. There's a little bit less Soviet interference, but um, certainly in the first four years, between 1945 and 1949, there's pretty strong Soviet uh, interference, but not just interference. There's also very powerful Soviet help. The Soviets actually try and succeed to get... um, cultural life going fairly quickly after the end of the war. It's actually amazing how quickly um, cultural life begins again. And one of the reasons why it begins again is that the Soviets see it as very important, you know. So um, it's not all negative. I mean, the Soviet um, approach to culture in East Germany, a lot of it is negative, but but some of it is positive. And, and when you look at some of the memoirs that 
that German writers write than in the 1960s and the 1970s. They remember some of these Soviet cultural officers very fondly. Some of them were trained Germanists. They spoke the language beautifully um, and had a real appreciation and understanding for German culture. So it's not all negative and it's not all bad. And of course, there are struggles within among the Soviet um experts themselves. So they, they're not all on the same page. Mm-hmm. So I believe this approach to literature as something and culture as something that can be constructed is very is very interesting because it brings forth the question about art, what is art and what's the role of art and what's the function of art. And I believe that you discussed the transformative nature of art uh, in terms of Zegger's works and Brecht's works as well. And there is one quote by, um, I believe, Emmerich, Yeah. Uh, about the function of early GDR uh, literature, that its function was to continue writing the official socialist discourse via aesthetic means to decorate it and make it more attractive for the people to affirm it. So obviously there is this, um, that uh, people are targets for uh, the writers and for the officials and somehow they are supposed to be reshaped and remodeled according to some idea. Yes. Yeah, there was this idea of the new man, mm-hmm. you know, the yeah. new socialist man, right? Uh, and that's a Soviet idea. It's also a German idea. So the idea is that you have to take the old man uh, and, 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 and recreate the new man. Um, there is a, there's a, also a, a famous quote from Stalin uh, that writers are the engineers of the human soul, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so that constantly gets uh, repeated, that Stalin quote about writers as the engineers of the, of the, of the human soul. Um, and what also is very important here, of course, is that both the East German writers and the Socialist Party and, of course, the Russians who are there know perfectly well that they're surrounded by former Nazis, right? I mean, you know, it's, it's Germany, it's Berlin, uh, and it's 1945. So, you know, Hitler hasn't even been dead for that long. Um, the war hasn't been over for that long. And everybody knows that a lot of these Germans who may not be talking about their past openly, but everybody knows that a lot of them are Nazis or are former Nazis. Uh, and so the idea of transforming mm-hmm. the old man into a new socialist man is also, of course, in the German context, an idea of transforming these old Nazis into, into productive members of a new socialist humanist society. So, um, and I think this idea of the new man, that's important in, you know, Soviet culture, but I think in Germany it takes on a particularly, um, poignant aspect um, after 1945, because, of course, the old man is the Nazi man, right? Mm-hmm. So you, um, um, so the last uh, year that you discuss in your research is 1959? Yeah. And um, there was, a, during the uh, 50s, there was a drastic change from what was going on in the late 40s and probably in the early 50s. And then there was some tremendous um, upheaval in, the 19, uh, in 1956, I believe. Yes. And that's when the changes um, started taking place and yes. the direction of this uh, newly constructed literature started changing as well. Yes, yes. So, um, so 1956 is a key year mm-hmm. in East Germany and also in the entire 
socialist bloc, really, um, because 1956 is the year when Khrushchev, um, at the 20th Congress of the of the um, uh, of the of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, um, when Khrushchev makes his so-called secret speech about the crimes of Stalin uh, in February of 1956, um, and it's also 1956 is the final year of what in East Germany was known as the New Course, mm-hmm. and the New Course was a kind of liberalization of cultural policy. Uh, in the wake of the of the June 1953 East German workers' uprising. There was a workers' uprising in June of 1953. And in the aftermath of that, cultural policy in East Germany was liberalized to mm-hmm. a significant extent. So between 1953 and 1956, you have a relative liberalization of East German culture and that continues throughout most of the year 1956, um, but and especially with Khrushchev's secret speech and the idea that the Soviet Union is also going through this period of liberalization. But then 1956 ends with the Hungarian Revolution um, in October. You've got a um, you've got a lot of um, a revolutionary activity going on in Poland, uh, and then there's a Soviet invasion of. Um, of, of, of Hungary. Um, and in, in East Germany, starting in December, uh, there's a crackdown. So what happens is that the state uh, arrests a number of the most important East German literary intellectuals. They then go on trial in 1957 um, and are sentenced to lengthy prison terms. Uh, and um, so you have this significant um, deliberalization mm-hmm. of 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 East German culture in 1957, 1958, and 1959. So that's that's how the book ends. It ends on an unpleasant note <laughs> uh, with this deliberalization of East German culture. But one of the things that I point out is that although the party does triumph, some of the best writers uh, then. Leave. So, for instance, Uwe Jonsson um, leaves, uh, and he publishes his book, Speculations About Jakob, Mutmasum uh, and Huber Jakob, um, in 1959, because he couldn't publish it in the East. So, um, you know, it's the party achieves a victory, but it's kind of a hollow victory, because some of the most important writers uh, and intellectuals leave after 1956. Uh, yeah. Um, so you mentioned that uh, some writers were approaching the uh, human soul as something that they can construct. But then uh, as uh, you were moving toward the 1950s, um, you, you also include the quote by Meyer. Do I pronounce it correctly? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, who, who says, uh, are writers really engineers of the human soul? In my opinion, this is a completely erroneous approach. The human soul is not an object for engineers to tinker with. And uh, to me, it sounds like there was this direction toward um, e- including 
more culture and more traditions into the development of um well i i don't even want to say new <laughs> german literature because again it will sound very complicated but um toward the development of german literature after this quite tumultuous period yeah yeah um i, I mean hans meyer is probably the most important german mm-hmm. literary critic uh at least certainly living in east german Mm-hmm. Uh, at at that time, and one of the remarkable things about him uh, is that even after the crackdown in 1956, um, even after that, so some of the most important literary intellectuals have been arrested and they're on trial, and then they do these prison sentences. But even after that happens, he continues to argue for a different and new kind of literature. And he does this into the 1960s, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, he doesn't leave. I mean, he eventually does leave, and I believe that happens in 1963, so two years after the building of the Berlin Wall. He doesn't actually leave until there's a campaign against him in the um, university press in Leipzig, and This campaign happens because he's written a positive article uh, about uh, in a book about Bulgakov's uh, Master and Margarita. So he writes this positive article about that book, uh, and then there's a major campaign against him, and in the end he finally leaves. Uh, but he holds out. You know, even after 1956, he holds out for quite a significant amount of time, and he's continuing to teach, he's continuing to educate people, And he's an inspiration for a lot of German young people. So do you plan on uh, revisiting the 1960s now? Yeah, I may well. I may well revisit the 1960s, yeah. So what's your current project? Uh, <laughs> well, uh, right now I'm sort of finishing up a kind of couple of loose ends that came from the book. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, I just finished writing an article about the 1956 Uh, Congress of the East German Writers Union. I touch on this briefly in the book in January of 1956. So this is several weeks before Khrushchev's secret speech. There's actually a meeting of the East German Writers Union uh, in Berlin. So I just finished writing an article about that. And I have a couple of other little things that I wasn't able to include in the book that I'll probably uh, publish as, as um, articles. But yeah, I may go back to the 1960s or I may possibly go back to the very end of the GDR because mm-hmm. I think um, that those final years of the GDR as the state is kind of collapsing are also uh, pretty interesting culturally. Um, so I, uh, I haven't exactly decided what my next major project is going to be. I'm still a little exhausted after this book. Well, uh, good luck on your future projects, then. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for this fascinating conversation. It's been a pleasure. And uh, thank you for joining us today, and uh, thank you for your very insightful research that really reveals the uh, very intricate interconnections between the political and the aesthetic, between the cultural and literary, in particular, and historical. Thank you so much, Dr. Brockman. It's my pleasure. <laughs>